Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by an educational grant from Genentech, Uran Pharmaceuticals, Vertex Pharmaceuticals, Axcan Pharma, and Gilead Sciences Medical Affairs. Today's program is a companion piece to our June 2010 E-Cystic Fibrosis Review newsletter, Vitamin D and Bone Health. Our guests are Drs. Deanna Green and Peter Megazo from Johns Hopkins. This activity has been developed for physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, dietitians, and physical therapists caring for patients with issues related to cystic fibrosis. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. The accreditation and credit designation statements can be found at the end of this podcast. For additional information about accreditation, Hopkins policies, expiration dates, and to take the post-test to receive credit online, please go to our website newsletter archive www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org and click on the July 2010 podcast link. Learning objectives for this program are that at the conclusion of this audio activity, participants should be better able to discuss the basis of the current vitamin D recommendation for patients with cystic fibrosis, describe various strategies for the treatment of vitamin D insufficiency, and compare the potential benefits and risks of using bisphosphonates for the treatment of osteoporosis in CF patients. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. On the line, we have with us the newsletter issue's authors. Dr. Deanna Green is a pediatric pulmonary fellow, and Dr. Peter McGazel is an associate professor of pediatrics, both at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. McGazel is also director of the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Center. Both Drs. Green and McGazel have disclosed that they have no financial relationships with commercial supporters, and that their presentation today will not include discussion of off-label or unapproved product uses. Dr. Green, Dr. McGazel... Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Thank you very much for this invitation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I think this is going to be a very interesting conversation. Vitamin D deficiency. Now, this is a topic that's certainly been getting a lot of attention in both the journals as well as the general media. Uh, Dr. McGazel, let me direct my first question to you. Why do you think this is, and how does it impact cystic fibrosis patients? You're right, Bob. There have been a number of publications recently on vitamin D related to cancer, heart disease, and improving health overall for both adults and children. Patients with cystic fibrosis are living longer, so they're developing more complications such as bone disease, and ensuring that vitamin D supplementation is adequate and figuring out new ways to prevent bone disease is becoming more and more important for CF patients. And these would be some of the reasons behind the CF Foundation's guidelines regarding bone health? Yes. In 2002, the CF Foundation convened a consensus conference. This consensus conference developed specific recommendations for the prevention of bone disease and the optimal supplementation of vitamin D for patients with cystic fibrosis. Dr. Green, anything to add? I would add that the original consensus guidelines did not have any actual demonstration in cystic fibrosis patients, and most of this was expert opinion. And at this time, we are actually trying to test these guidelines to see if they hold true in those with cystic fibrosis. Well, that's going to make it very difficult for clinicians to determine the most effective way to treat their CF patients to optimize their bone health. What I'd like to do is look at this challenge in a patient-oriented context. So if you would, Dr. Green, give us a case scenario. Sure, Bob. Let's talk about a child with cystic fibrosis. Let's say we have a five-year-old female. Her parents come to clinic routinely as they're supposed to. Overall, she's very healthy. They state she has no lung problems. She seems to eat pretty well and has been gaining weight fairly well. They state having given her all of her prescribed medicines on a routine basis. 
she ends up getting both pancreatic enzymes as well as her cystic fibrosis recommended vitamins. Her parents are therefore very interested in continuing to keep her healthy and want to know what our recommendations would be for her future. And following up, what would your recommendations be at this point? Well, our first recommendation to the parents would actually be kind of a reinforcing idea and encouraging them to keep doing what they're doing. If she, in fact, has good weight gain and seems to be appropriate for a five-year-old, then they seem to be doing what is needed. We would definitely encourage them to keep using her pancreatic enzymes. And then the next most important thing would be working towards prevention of anything such as bone disease or things that these children may develop as they become adults. The biggest problem we have right now with vitamin D deficiency is that we don't know exactly when it's going to start for patients. And so what we initially recommend is that everyone needs to be on vitamin D, which tends to be provided in their regular routine vitamins. Every patient with cystic fibrosis should be on a vitamin supplement. This is a multivitamin along with both vitamins A, E, D, and K. The dose of vitamin D in these supplements depends on the actual dose that patients are getting, as well as the type of supplement that they're getting. The supplements can range in dosage of vitamin D anywhere from 400 international units up to approximately 1,000 international units. And therefore, patients can get a variable range of doses that they're getting just in vitamin D. Additionally, many parents that come to see us in clinic believe that their patients can actually get vitamin D in the foods that they get on a daily basis. And what's important to emphasize to these parents is that vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin, and if they're not also taking their pancreatic enzymes, they may not be able to absorb what they get in their food. Additionally, most foods have a lower amount of vitamin D than most of us suspect, such as in milk, you're only getting about 400 international units in a single 8-ounce cup of milk. So a lot of our patients with cystic fibrosis may actually need higher doses than what they've been provided in their vitamins or in their daily food. What you've been describing are some good general preventative mechanisms. But that raises the question, is there a way to determine which patients are more likely to have problems with vitamin D deficiency? No, there isn't. Studies have shown that a vitamin D deficiency may be present as early as birth, and there's no way to really predict which patients are going to have low vitamin D levels. That's why we recommend testing children for vitamin D on a regular basis. And the most appropriate test to do is a 25-hydroxy vitamin D level. So despite a good diet and routine vitamins and pancreatic enzymes, a child can be vitamin D deficient at any point. Dr. Green? Yes, the only thing I would add is that it is important to know that patients may be sufficient at one point. However, they can become insufficient at another point, and therefore it's very important to check vitamin D levels on at least a annual basis for cystic fibrosis patients. Measuring levels on an annual basis, what would be considered a low vitamin D level? Well, optimally, you'd measure vitamin D levels in the fall or winter when vitamin D levels are likely to be at their lowest because of the limited sun exposure. Most experts agree that a 25-hydroxy vitamin D level of 30 nanograms per milliliter or higher is adequate. And when a patient does show insufficient levels, what's the best course of action? Well, if you think about a child or an adult that has a low vitamin D level, say a 12-year-old with a vitamin D level of 20, 
the first step is to make sure that they're actually taking the pancreatic enzymes appropriately and using their vitamin supplements as prescribed. If that's the case, then their vitamin D intake should be supplemented. And there are recommendations from the cystic fibrosis consensus guidelines of giving 50,000 units of ergocalciferol once a week for eight weeks, and then to increase this amount should the level continue to be low. However, studies that we've done at Johns Hopkins have shown that this repletion strategy is not really adequate to improve vitamin D levels for an extended period of time. That giving up to 50,000 units of vitamin D once a day for a month can be effective in transiently improving vitamin D levels, but that this isn't necessarily sustained over time. Based on these studies and other investigators that have looked at vitamin D supplementation, it's clear that the recommendations that are available don't really provide an optimal approach for replacing vitamin D or supplementing patients that are vitamin D insufficient. This is an area where future research is clearly warranted. An alternative approach that may be more effective would be to increase the daily intake of vitamin D that patients receive routinely. And the approach of preventing vitamin D insufficiency by higher daily supplements rather than treating insufficiency when it occurs may be more effective. I completely agree with Dr. McGazel's last point. One of the biggest concerns we have is with use of high-dose ergocalciferol, especially in the doses of 50,000 international units, once a day for multiple days, there's a high risk that vitamin D toxicity may be developing in these patients. Many patients are not monitored for things such as high calcium, which may then lead to stones in their kidneys or other risks. And therefore, it is very difficult for us to determine when patients may actually be having vitamin D toxicity. Additionally, the actual level of vitamin D in the 25-hydroxy vitamin D has not been determined what would be associated with toxicity. So I think it's very important that maybe a lower routine daily supplement would be appropriate for patients with cystic fibrosis as opposed to intermittent high-dose therapies that they're currently receiving. Now, you bring up a very good point. It probably is more appropriate to increase the daily supplementation to try to prevent vitamin D insufficiency than to take high-dose supplements knowing that there is a risk of toxicity and a limited effectiveness of this approach. This is clearly an area where further research would be helpful. Considering the potential toxicity as well as the potential lack of effect you've been discussing, what are the alternatives a clinician might consider for increasing vitamin D levels? Actually, Bob, there are multiple different forms of vitamin D that are available that could be used. The original consensus guidelines recommended use of ergocalciferol, which is vitamin D2, mainly because this particular medication can be prescribed to patients and you can get it in fairly high concentrated doses. There is another form of vitamin D that's available called cholecalciferol, which is vitamin D3. This medication doesn't have as high of formulations usually as ergocalciferol. Additionally, if you think about how vitamin D is absorbed, you can get it both in your food as well as from the sun, and therefore ultraviolet radiation through ultraviolet B provides vitamin D as well. Recent studies have actually compared the effectiveness of all 
three of those particular regimens, ergocalciferol, cholecalciferol, as well as ultraviolet B, and basically found that cholecalciferol seemed to be the most effective at increasing vitamin D levels in patients with cystic fibrosis. Now, the major concern is which is better for patients. Is ultraviolet radiation better or would it be appropriate to continue with oral regimens? The study that looked at the comparative effectiveness of these three alternatives found that many patients with cystic fibrosis were non-compliant with the ultraviolet radiation, mainly because they were now requiring an additional 10 minutes that they needed to provide themselves with some sort of treatment therapy. Additionally, there's a concern from our dermatology colleagues that additional ultraviolet may lead to skin cancer, and therefore further research in the area of using ultraviolet radiation needs to be done. So at this time, it seems probably the most likely alternative to what's listed in the consensus guidelines is to use cholecalciferol instead of ergocalciferol. Dr. McGazel, anything to add? Although exposure to sunlight is a wonderful way to produce vitamin D, one has to remember there's very little ultraviolet B radiation in northern latitudes, even in the summer. Therefore, to use this therapy, patients living in northern latitudes would need to use an ultraviolet light. And as Dr. Green pointed out, this tends to have poor compliance because of the added burden of care. The vitamin D treatment regimen at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. Tell us about that, if you would, please. At Hopkins, what we've been doing based on the current evidence is actually changing the routine daily care of our patients. And for all of our patients, we are now giving them an additional 2,000 international units of cholecalciferol on top of what they're already receiving in their vitamin A, D, E, and K. And we'll return in a moment with Drs. Deanna Green and Peter McGazel from Johns Hopkins. Hello, I'm Megan Ramsey, nurse practitioner and clinical coordinator for adults at the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I am one of the program directors of eCystic Fibrosis Review. These podcast programs will be provided on a regular basis to enable you to receive additional current, concise, peer-reviewed information through podcasting, a medium that is gaining wide acceptance throughout the medical community. In fact, today, there are over 5,000 medical podcasts. To receive credit for this educational activity and to review Hopkins policies, please go to our website at www www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. This podcast is part of eCystic Fibrosis Review, a bi-monthly email-delivered program available by subscribing. Each issue reviews the current literature on focused topics important to clinicians caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for Physicians and by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing for Nurses. Subscription to E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge, and nearly a 1,000 of our colleagues have already become subscribers. The topic-focused literature reviews help them keep up-to-date on issues critical to maintaining the quality of care for their patients. For more information, to register to receive E-Cystic Fibrosis Review without charge and to access back issues, please go to www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. 
Welcome back to our July 2010 E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. Our topic is vitamin D and bone health, and our guests are Dr. Deanna Green and Dr. Peter McGazel from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. We've been talking about helping CF patients achieve sufficient vitamin D levels to prevent bone disease. But what about treating bone disease once it's present, Dr. McGazel? Well, for instance, if you have a 32-year-old male who's had two vertebral fractures in the past and routinely has vitamin D levels of 25 nanograms per milliliter, despite ADEK vitamin supplements and high-dose ergocalciferol, which has been given repeatedly, there are several approaches one could take. First of all would be to try to increase vitamin D supplementation to try to get the 25-hydroxy vitamin D level above 30 to prevent future problems and to help with bone remodeling. It's important to realize, though, that bone disease may actually have started early and that reversing bone disease can be very difficult. A significant proportion of bone is laid down during adolescence, and it may be difficult to reverse osteopenia or osteomalacia or osteoporosis, which has developed solely by increasing vitamin D and calcium supplementation. One therapy that's now available is to use bisphosphonates, which are a therapy recommended in the CF Foundation guidelines. This can help to improve bone mineral density. The use of bisphosphonates for supplementation, both IV and oral. Dr. Green, tell us more about those, if you would. In the past, multiple different bisphosphonates have been studied further use in patients with osteopenia and osteoporosis. There haven't been quite as many studied within the cystic fibrosis patient, and predominantly there's been two types used. One is alidronate, which is a oral form of bisphosphonate, and in a couple small trials, it was found when used on a daily basis for approximately 12 weeks that there was an improvement in bone mineral density, which was studied in patients with cystic fibrosis. This form seemed to be very easy to take in patients. However, it did need to be taken on a daily basis, and therefore noncompliance began to be an issue for some patients. An additional form which was studied was an IV form of bisphosphonate called pomidronate. This was also found to be very effective in increasing bone mineral density. However, there were significant side effects in that many patients reported very severe bone pain. Most recently, alidronate has now been studied being used only once a week. And in this form, compliance seemed to be less of an issue for patients with cystic fibrosis. And when alidronate was given in 70 milligrams once a week for 12 months, at the end of the treatment trial, it was found that there was a significant improvement in bone mineral density in all patients with cystic fibrosis. This is an important advancement because intravenous bisphosphonates have been associated with significant side effects, including substantial pain following infusion, which has really limited their use in cystic fibrosis patients. The hope is that oral bisphosphonates that can be given on a schedule that favors good compliance will be much more useful in the treatment of CF patients. I want to change subjects now, doctors, and talk about the nationwide mandate for newborn screening. Uh, Obviously, that's going to increase the number of CF babies clinicians see. What do you recommend for a newborn who tests as vitamin D deficient? 
Well, you bring up a wonderful point. Newborn screening is now universal in the United States, and we have the opportunity to see patients in cystic fibrosis centers before they develop any symptoms. The approach to all therapy for cystic fibrosis care is prevention and prevention of pulmonary disease, but also prevention of bone disease moving forward. We know from studies that vitamin D deficiency can occur right from birth, so that monitoring for vitamin D deficiency even early in life before other problems like failure to thrive may be present is vitally important. That's why the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation recommends testing 25-hydroxyvitamin D levels in infants before three months of age and then repeating the level if the baby is found to be sufficient when he or she turns a year old. Obviously, if the initial level is low, then it should be repeated after appropriate supplementation is given. If an infant is deficient, then the optimal approach isn't quite known yet, but we know that supplementing with cholecalciferol or other vitamin D analogs is vitally important, and achieving a level of greater than 30 nanograms per milliliter should be the goal. And it should not be unreasonable to accomplish that, even in small infants. These treatment recommendations... Isn't there a particular consideration with toxicities in newborns? There is, and the recommendations initially in the consensus guideline was at a much lower supplementation than you would be in a child. So the recommendations for children over the age of one were to supplement with ergocalciferol, 50,000 international units once a week. For infants, the recommendation was only 12,000 international units once a week hoping that toxicity would not develop with the lower doses. Unfortunately, the lower doses also have been found not to improve vitamin D levels as well as the higher doses of ergocalciferol, even in infants. Anything else to add about vitamin D deficiency in newborns? Dr. Green? The only thing I was going to add would be that there's also a great push for breastfeeding in the United States. And with that, infants are not able to receive any vitamin D in breast milk. And so it's even more important in cystic fibrosis patients that they are receiving adequate amount of vitamin D and therefore supplementing with multivitamins with A, D, E, and K is very important in patients with cystic fibrosis as it is with any other normal children, they should always have a multivitamin. But especially in cystic fibrosis, they're at greater risk, and especially if they're breastfed. One final question, and I'm going to direct it to both of you. The future of addressing vitamin D deficiency in cystic fibrosis. Dr. McGazel? Well, we know that vitamin D is very important in bone health in patients with cystic fibrosis. However, vitamin D may have a number of other roles in promoting lung health. It's known that vitamin D sufficiency, having an adequate vitamin D level is very important in asthma and maintaining lung function in asthma. There's also accumulating evidence that vitamin D is important in fighting off infections such as influenza and tuberculosis. So there may be a role for vitamin D in moderating or ameliorating the infections that are seen in cystic fibrosis. Taken together, it implies that vitamin D may have important roles in cystic fibrosis patients beyond just bone health. And future studies addressing this possibility will be very important.
I completely agree with Dr. McGazel. I find the research with vitamin D and lung function in general to be completely fascinating. I think that would be a great avenue. But addressing just vitamin D and bone health, I think there's still quite a few questions left to be answered. And one most important one is whether we actually know the correct vitamin D level that these patients need to achieve. Does it really need to be a vitamin D level of 30 nanograms per milliliter, or does that level need to be higher to prevent bone loss? Additionally, as we've been alluding to, it's still very unclear on what the actual dose of vitamin D patients need on a routine basis. So further research into that particular avenue is also warranted at this time. Another important study would be to investigate the long-term effects of bisphosphonates to determine the optimal dosing and strategies that will get optimal long-term effects. From the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, Dr. Deanna Green, Dr. Peter McGazel, thank you for participating in this eCystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. We enjoyed talking to you. This podcast is presented in conjunction with eCystic Fibrosis Review, a peer-reviewed CE-accredited literature review emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education to physicians. For physicians, the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this educational activity for a maximum of 0.75 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should only claim credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hours. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eCystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information of specific drugs, combination of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indications, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. Thank you for listening. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by an educational grant from Genentech, Uran Pharmaceuticals, Vertex Pharmaceuticals, Axcan Pharma, and Gilead Sciences Medical Affairs. This program is copyrighted 2010, with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing.